tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Adventure, adventure, adventure. Adventure in the Time of the Anthropocene, with me, Jake Smith. You are standing in inky blackness, looking up a long flight of stairs, at the top of which lurks something unbelievably evil, while in the moving shadows behind you, coming closer to you, is the shadowy figure of something that could only come from... A nightmare. The opening of I Saw Myself Running, broadcast in February 1953, defies the conventions of the series by not culminating in the word escape. This is an early indication that the episode will not be a run-of-the-mill adventure. I Saw Myself Running is unusual because it's only one of six episodes that feature a female hero And it's an adventure that takes place almost entirely indoors. This is my third and final podcast about one of Escape's indoor adventures. And like The Vanishing Lady and Evening Primrose, I Saw Myself Running begins in a domestic setting with a conversation between a married couple. Go through the magazine section, sweetie. No, but it's all right. Here. Well, then, if you're not through... No, you have it. Thanks. Mm. Want the woman's page? No, thanks. Freddie. Mm-hmm? I had the strangest dream last night. No? Anybody we know? Don't be funny. If you stop reading for a minute, I'll tell you about it. <laughs> okay. I was scared. Why didn't you wake me up? Why? It wouldn't have done any good. It, it's the funniest thing. It was a nightmare, I guess. You know, the kind where you see yourself running away from something or, or from somebody. Too much beer. It starts the same way, like any other dream, I suppose. But then I'm running away. Somebody I don't know is following me. And then there are two of us. Both me, running. Mm-hmm. Uh, coffee still hot? Freddy? Sue. Honey, I don't know anything about dreams. If you're asking me what I think it means, I don't know. Offhand, I'd say that last bottle of beer. Coffee. Thanks. Freddy? Mm-hmm. Nothing. 
This opening scene with Susan and Freddie presents a female character's expressions of concern being met with male skepticism and indifference. And we might recall similar moments in The Vanishing Lady. The walls are not rose brocade, but yellow flowered wallpaper. No! No, my dear mademoiselle, you see how thoroughly mistaken you are. No, no, no! And in Evening Primrose. You don't believe this stuff, do you? Well, I don't know. I, I, I oh, just... forget it, baby. Come on, snap out of it. After this opening scene, the episode oscillates between Susan's dreams and her waking reality. This kind of story is great for radio, and the scholar Mladen Dolar has written about how the brink between sleep and wakefulness has a strong link to our experience of sound. Think of the common experience of being awoken by a sound. What time is it right now? First, the sound intrudes into your dream. Why does, why do the bells keep ringing? What bell? The church bell? I don't hear anything. Seriously, you don't hear that? Seriously? But once it gets too noisy, you wake up. And the first thing you have to do is figure out the real source of that sound. It was just a dream. Morning. For Dolar, sound's ability to be a bridge between dream and wakefulness is a template for the many ways in which sound is an entity of the edge. Sound, and in particular our voices, can negotiate an edge between the inside of our bodies and the outside between our inner subjective thoughts and others, between reality and fantasy. Let's keep that in mind as we listen to I Saw Myself Running, which turns out to be a great illustration of how sound can negotiate some of these edges. When we think about sound as an entity of the edge, it gets a new role in an eco-critical investigation of toxics in the environment. Stories told in sound provide us with powerful figures for the ways in which our bodies are always intermeshed with the more than human and possibly toxic world. Susan goes to bed and a ringing noise cues us that she's fallen asleep. I think I was a little surprised when it began again. I didn't realize I was asleep yet, but it was there, the same as the last time. A face, only a face, not unkind, not anything. And it was so far away, and around it was a piece of cardboard with circles drawn on it. The face in the center, and it went round and round. First only a dot, and then it came closer, and the noise came with it. Everything was spinning so much it made me dizzy, but I could always see it right side up. It was very close to me, and the face was somebody's I'd never seen before. It was a man, I think, and I knew that he didn't care, and I wanted to cry. Then it was gone. I was alone in a big hall, and I thought I'd seen the place before, but I couldn't have done because I knew it was only a dream. Even then, I knew I was dreaming because I could see myself. There was a wide staircase going up into a dark place that was higher than any place I'd ever seen. I was at the foot of the stairs, looking up, and my face was frightened. 
I saw myself open my mouth to say something. To call upstairs into the dark. Oh, don't come down. Please don't. I don't want to see you. I, I'm afraid. Don't come down. In the dream, Susan finds that she's split into two selves and is now on the staircase with her double, Sue. I found myself looking up the staircase with her, and there were two of us standing next to each other, touching. I could feel her hand. It was warm. I don't. You mustn't come down. Who is it? I don't know, Susan. I never know. But it's up there, in the shadows. Well, listen. You can hear it. I'm afraid. It'll come down soon and I'll try to run, but I won't be able to get away. It's always the same. This is a dream. It's a dream. I'm having a dream. I can wake up now if I want to. I'll be here alone then. You always leave me here alone. That's silly. How can I leave you alone when you're me? It's only a dream. Susan and Sue next find themselves in a garden. And it was very quiet except for a single bird. And it sang strangely and sadly. Why do you dream? What a silly question. Everybody dreams. If you didn't dream, I wouldn't have to be here. I I wouldn't be afraid all the time. There's nothing to be afraid of. It's warm. So peaceful. They see a caterpillar, and Sue becomes afraid. I'm afraid of caterpillars. I used to be. I'm not anymore. I'm still afraid of them. I remember the first time you dreamed of them. You'd been frightened when one crawled on your hand. You were very small then. That's the first time I had to be afraid of them. Well, that was a long time ago. I don't mind them now. I do. I mind everything you think you've forgotten. Look, there's one crawling on my shoe. Will you squash the caterpillar? I can't. I'm afraid. All right. As Susan squashes the caterpillar, the scene shifts abruptly to the interior of an airplane. What is this place? It's an airplane. I've never been in an airplane before. I know. I'm afraid of them. I'll fall out. And it'll be such a long time for me to know that I'm going to die. I I don't want to fall. Hold on to me. You won't fall. It's only a dream. You see, Freddy's the pilot, and he can't fly. I know he can't. The plane breaks apart, and Susan and Sue jump out wearing parachutes. At first, Susan enjoys the fall. It's such a nice, floating sensation. But she begins to panic, and suddenly the dream becomes terrifyingly real. It was that TV show we watched. Freddy! It's all right. I love you. You don't have to be afraid. I don't want to dream anymore. I'm afraid. It was like last night. The other night. But worse. Now listen, Susan. Freddy, look at me. Do I sound the same? Honey, you're... Do I sound the same? There's two of us. When I go to sleep, when I dream, there's another woman there. That's who I've been seeing all these oh, years. But... It's not me. It's someone else. 
When we think about sound as an entity of the edge, we should note that Susan's initial crossing of the edge into sleep sets off a chain reaction of border confusion relating to voice and body, self and other, single and multiple as Susan fractures into two entities, Susan and Sue, and fantasy and reality as her dream suddenly becomes real to her. So I Saw Myself Running is all about crossing borders, and that makes it fit nicely on an adventure series because adventure stories are also often about crossing borders. On most episodes of Escape, it's a male hero who does the border crossing, like a spy who crosses international lines for the purpose of espionage, or an explorer who crosses into a wilderness region. I Saw Myself Running maintains adventure's imperative to cross borders, but it does it with a female hero, and it maps that spatial dynamic onto interior, psychological spaces. Remember how The Vanishing Lady moved adventure into hotel lobbies, and Evening Primrose did something similar with department stores. I Saw Myself Running presents an adventure without even leaving the home. In that way, it's maybe the most striking of Escape's indoor adventures. Freddie takes Susan to a doctor to talk about her nightmares. Freddie took me to the doctor, and I tried to tell him about the dreams. And when I finished, he examined me, tested my heart, blood pressure. Then he said... Susan... You're tired. That's what's the matter with you. But I, ha- I haven't been doing anything to be tired. Really, I haven't. You're overwrought. It could be a vitamin deficiency, any number of little things, but it's not serious. You're in good shape. Now, what you need is to get away for a few days. But I feel all right. It's just that dream. The girl, the one who looks like me. I want you to forget about that dream. It's only because you're tired that you have the dream in the first place. Now, I'm going to give you a sedative to take just before going to bed. A few nights, good sleep, and you'll be fit as a fiddle. I don't want to dream anymore. That's all. He patted me on the arm, smiling. Freddie smiled. And I took the little box of sedative pills home with me. I couldn't tell them. I couldn't make them understand. It wasn't just a dream. It was something that was happening. Really happening. This scene really drives home the script's critique of male authority and makes the show feel like it's foreshadowing the landmark publication in 1963 of Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique. The Feminine Mystique was the name I gave to the definition of woman solely in sexual terms, solely in terms of her sexual relation to man, as man's wife, mother, mistress, sex object, server of physical needs, of husband, man, of children, and even of the appliances of the home. Never as a human being herself first, a person in her own right first. Friedan wrote that many post-war women felt as though they were waking from a coma. She wrote about male doctors who would diagnose this problem as housewives' fatigue and how their solution was to prescribe women tranquilizers. Friedan characterized her famous 
problem that has no name, as a voice. Post-war housewives, Friedan wrote, had adjusted to their limited career options, but they still might hear a strange, dissatisfied voice stirring within them. This voice that is inside of herself that says, I, housework is not enough for me, is, a, is her voice, a legitimate voice. You're probably starting to see the connection I want to make. Susan in I Saw Myself Running is a post-war housewife misdiagnosed with fatigue who struggles with an inner voice that threatens to awaken her from a comatose existence. Susan refuses to follow the doctor's advice, and instead of taking the sedative, she decides to keep herself awake to avoid dreaming. After Freddie goes to bed, Susan forces herself to read in the living room where the ticking of a clock signals that time is passing slowly and painfully. Desperate to keep herself awake, Susan flips aimlessly through the dial of her radio. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not. I'm not. time it gets light, it'll be easier when it's light. I'll read some more. Make some coffee. Susan keeps herself awake the following day until she begins to feel sick and collapses on the living room couch. We hear the ticking of the clock again and then eerie music. Now we hear two clocks ticking, the second moving at a much slower tempo. The ticking of the clock, emblematic of how sound can be an entity of the edge, serves as a bridge between states of consciousness, and Susan, now in a dream, sees herself in the big hall, looking up the staircase. Look! The darkness at the top of the stairs seemed to move, take shape. And I heard her screaming. I saw myself screaming. But it wasn't my voice. It was the girl I stood next to. And slowly, painfully, she turned away from the stairs and tried to run. It was like a slow motion picture. Her legs moved, but she stayed in the same place. Then the darkness started to come toward us. It swirled down the stairs and there was a figure in it and a face. But the mouth in the face wasn't a mouth at all. It had no form. And the face changed and grew bigger, came closer, around in an awful blackness. And I saw myself running. This remarkable sequence culminates in a moment of anti-action. And so it recalls a similar scene in The Vanishing Lady when Cynthia is trapped, immobilized by that endless cab ride. 
In both cases, we get the sense that the male-centric conventions of mid-century adventure are straining to adapt to a story with a female hero. This is the point in The Vanishing Lady where the narrative introduces a male character, Bruce, who gets the story moving again. I say, having some trouble. Oh, thank heavens, you're English. All right, you are. I Saw Myself Running takes a darker turn by preventing the male character's intervention. As Susan and Sue hide in a narrow passageway from the darkness that's pursuing them, Susan hears a telephone ringing. Susan recognizes this as the phone in her living room where she lies asleep. So it's another entity of the edge, a sonic intrusion from the waking world that's weakening the hold of her dream. It sounds like my telephone. How can it be? Because this is only a dream. And if I wake up, I'll answer it. Susan realizes that if she moves to answer the telephone, she'll wake up and escape the nightmare. But Sue prevents her from seizing this lifeline to the waking world. It's on the table at the end of the couch. I can wake up and answer it. No, you can't. I won't let you. I'm not going to stay here alone. I've got to wake up. You can't now. But listen. We've got to run again. It'll catch us now. Hurry! Now Freddie and Dr. Peters appear in the passageway, and Sue, who is becoming more confident and assertive, offers to talk to them. Let me talk to them, Susan. You let me talk to them. I'll take care of it. You'll see. I saw her walk slowly to the entrance, to where it was light and there was sunshine. And the three of them talked very quietly. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but I knew it was about me. She was pointing at me. And Freddie was laughing. And it made me angry. So angry that I forgot to be afraid. I ran over to them, and as I did so, they blocked the entrance, linking their arms to keep me back. She's told us all about you, Susan. It's taken a long time to find you out. Stop it. There's no such person. She's me. She's Susan. This is only a dream. I can wake up whenever I want. Stop it. Stop it. It's true. You're tired. Overwrought. Oh, I'm not. You mustn't say that. It isn't true. Please, let me out. I'm cold. I'm afraid. You kept her down here all your life. Now, because you're afraid and cold, you expect us to let you out and make her go back inside. Freddy, it's me. I'm your wife. I've always been fair. I want to be fair this time. Oh, yes. We have to be fair. Sue, what do you think? Should we let her out? Oh, no. She'll only wake up and leave me here. I want to wake up this time. Let her stay. You, you're crazy. You can't make me stay here. I won't. I won't. I think that you'd better talk to her, Susan. You're a woman. It's better that way. The doctor and I will wait for you outside. All right. But don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid now. That comes later when you have to go back into the passage. When I wake up, I'm not going to be like you. I'll never dream ever again. You're going to stay here alone, just the way you made me do it all your life. Listen, it's waiting for you. Can you hear it? No, 
Please, don't make me. Please, it'll get me. Please. It won't get you if you keep running, but you must never stop. I'm afraid. It's dark. I'm afraid. Oh, please, don't make me go back. I'm Susan. I've got the way, God. I'll wake up now. Bringing Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique into the mix has helped us to hear that there's a strong feminist valence to scenes like this. I want to suggest that there's a related environmental critique here as well. Friedan wrote, that in the logic of the gender politics of the post-war era, the crucial function that women were to serve was as consumers. It was hoped that women would buy more things if they were kept in the nameless, yearning state of being housewives. There is only really one image of woman on television today, and that is a moronic uh, little uh, uh, blonde Household drone. I mean, her greatest achievement is to get the kitchen sink pure white or the shirts white. You know. She needs the help of elderly counselors, you know, and many costly chemicals to do that. And New Blue Mist Windex gets glass so clean it seems to disappear. This connection between consumption and domestic confinement can be a link that pulls together Betty Friedan's feminine mystique with the arguments in Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Liquinet, the invisible liquid hairnet. Easy Off Spray turns that hard black grease into soft brown soap. When we combine Friedan and Carson's perspectives, we might notice a link between housewives' fatigue and domestic environments that were full of toxic household products and indoor pollutants. Yes, rage kills flies, mosquitoes, roaches, ants, all kinds of bugs indoors. Uh, new Flint releases a superfine mist, which spreads as a potent vapor. <laughs> Smells pleasant to people, but quickly knocks annoying flies and mosquitoes out of the air. How about that? Yes, in any room of the house, Glade makes indoor air seem fresh as all outdoors. With the ease of dusting alone, Pledge dusts, cleans, and shines. Scouring powder, disinfectant, bleach, deodorizer. Today I get to clean the bathroom bowl. Ecofeminist scholars have explored this intersection through the topic of environmental illness or multiple chemical sensitivity. According to one study, about 15% of all Americans have developed an acute sensitivity to common household chemicals. It's a disease known as multiple chemical sensitivity, or MCS for short. In most cases, MCS triggers a mild reaction, like a rash or runny nose. But a growing number of people have symptoms that are much more severe. So severe, they become permanently disabled, prisoners of a chemical world. This is a condition that, for one critic, shows how environmental concerns are always inside as well as outside, that the scary stuff supposedly out there is already within. 
So, if I saw myself running can be heard as an allegory of a proto-feminist awakening, it can also be heard as an allegory about the domestic spaces of the Anthropocene. A toxic reading of the show makes us wonder the extent to which Susan's fatigue and troubling dreams are tied to the presence of toxic chemicals lurking in her home. Maybe her couch has been treated with chemical flame retardants. After that, I had to lie down on the living room couch because I felt sick. Maybe her radio is causing what was called radio wave sickness in the 1950s and is now called electromagnetic hypersensitivity. Maybe the swirling darkness at the top of the stairway is a figure for the toxic smog that was penetrating post-war homes and bodies. We're listening now to recordings made by the sound artist Christina Kubish. We've listened to Kubish's work throughout my discussion of Escape's indoor adventures. You might recall that Kubish has developed techniques for making audible the ubiquitous electromagnetic fields that surround us in everyday life. I Saw Myself Running is a golden age radio drama that takes advantage of sound as an entity of the edge. And Kubish's work does something similar with contemporary audio. Using sound to reveal the invisible ways in which we are intermeshed with our environment. To tighten the knot between I Saw Myself Running feminism and environmentalism, I want to concretize a particular detail in the story. Let's go back to that strange scene in the garden during one of Susan's dreams. It's here that we learn that Sue functions as a reservoir for all of Susan's fears. Sue seems to absorb anxieties so that Susan can continue to function in her everyday waking life. Sue's voice is fearful and childlike, as though she's part of Susan that's stuck at an earlier phase of development. I mind everything you think you've forgotten. Oh, look, will you squash the caterpillar? I can't, I, I'm afraid. In The Feminine Mystique, Friedan described the stunting of growth that was perpetuated upon women because they weren't permitted to fulfill their potential as adult human beings. The feminine mystique begins operating at a very early age. Even in junior high school, before, you know, before puberty, before adolescence, the, the, the girl who has really swallowed the whole uh, femininity thing will begin to... Uh, really suppress her own abilities and potential. As an analogy, Friedan refers to a scientific experiment where biologists fed a youth serum to caterpillars so that they remained in a larval state and never matured into moths. So it was that the feminine mystique was fed to women, keeping them in a state of sexual larvae 
and preventing them from achieving the maturity of which they were capable. In the dream logic of I saw myself running, Susan's larval self is manifested by the caterpillar that appears in the garden. Will you squash the caterpillar? I can't. I, I'm afraid. The caterpillar is the detail that I want to concretize. All right. Friedan doesn't specify the type of caterpillar that was the subject of the youth serum experiment that she writes about. But the species that was getting the most attention at this time was undoubtedly the larvae of the gypsy moth. This is the caterpillar that is eating America. They are tiny varmints creating gigantic problems, not the least of which is turning neighbor against neighbor. They're gypsy moth caterpillars, fuzzy, ugly little creatures that are born to munch and munch and munch. There are billions, billions of them creeping from one tree to the next doing their thing, eating leaves, one munch at a time, which weakens the tree and sometimes kills it. An estimated 70 million trees died last year, victims of the gypsy moth. Gypsy moth caterpillars were also a central player in Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. In fact, Carson was inspired to write about the hazards of pesticides by the debate over the spraying of DDT to eradicate gypsy moths. DDT, the miracle insecticide that helped prevent epidemics in war-torn Europe and the Pacific areas, goes to work in an American community. Trucks go out to spray an entire county in the state of Georgia. Over 20,000 homes, dairies, restaurants, and stores are visited by the sprayers, armed with large quantities of the DDT insecticide. No corner of the area escapes the DDT spray. This was one campaign in a long chemical war that was waged against the gypsy moth, an early example of policy against invasive species in the United States. Ironically, the gypsy moth is not native to North America. The species was brought here to Medford, Massachusetts from Europe in 1868 by a French naturalist who was trying to develop a cheap domestic silkworm. A pair of moths escaped through the window of his laboratory. The laboratory is no longer here, but the gypsy moths are. In the summer of 1889, the townspeople of Medford, Massachusetts, discovered gypsy moth caterpillars in astounding numbers. A state commission was established to eradicate the gypsy moth, and infected areas were sprayed with the arsenical chemical Paris Green. The use of arsenic on the gypsy moth provoked early concern about the toxic impact of pesticides and articles in the Boston Daily Globe complained that Paris Green was destroying fruit trees and posing a risk to children who picked and ate blueberries. Despite the arsenic, the gypsy moth continued to spread across New England. And after World War II, the Department of Agriculture declared an all-out chemical war on the species. This included spraying DDT in populated areas, and that caused concern about the contamination of gardens, farms, fish ponds, and communities. The storm of criticism brought about by DDT spraying in the 1950s was the topic of a chapter in Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. The balance of nature is built of a series of interrelationships between living things and between living things and their environment. You can't just step in with some brute force. 
can change one thing without changing a good many others. Man's attitude toward nature is today critically important simply because we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. But man is part of nature and his war against nature is inevitably a war against himself. In 1890, the Boston Daily Globe published an article about the gypsy moth with the headline, Scared by a Caterpillar. Scared by a Caterpillar could be an alternative title for the show, I Saw Myself Running. Susan might be having nightmares about caterpillars because they represent a confrontation with her larval self or because they're doused with DDT dropped indiscriminately from the skies. Maybe the bird singing so strangely and sadly in the garden was one of the many animals that was poisoned by eating insects soaked in pesticide. It's tempting to hear Susan's dream as a dream that post-war culture is having about itself, merging public discourse about toxic chemicals with the problem that has no name. In other words, I saw myself running itself as a kind of entity of the edge, bridging a post-war feminism and environmentalism that were just taking shape at the time of the broadcast. Let's return one last time to I Saw Myself Running, to cross the edge again between dream and reality, and see how the story ends. Susan! Susan! Darling, are you all right? Susan. Mm. I called you, but there was no answer. I was worried. You all right? Feeling better? Mm. You look better. Say, you know what? I've arranged to take five days off from the office. We'll go up to the mountains. That's what the doctor ordered. How about it? Ah, it sounds wonderful, Freddy. I figure if we... Suze. Yes, darling? Your... Your voice... It sounds funny. My voice? I... Well, it's me. It's the only voice I've got. But it... It doesn't sound like you. Are you sure you're... Oh, silly. How can it be me and not sound like me? Oh, you are silly. Give me a kiss. Sus. What's the matter with your voice? With surreal shifts in location and clever play with sound as an entity of the edge... I Saw Myself Running is one of the most striking examples of sound design heard on Escape. This ending is another example of how the show takes full advantage of the sonic dimension of radio drama. Susan had asked before, do I sound the same? And now here, at the end, the final shudder of horror that the story produces hinges on our ability to listen carefully and recognize a unique voice. What's the matter with your voice? We also end with perhaps Escape's most extreme example of an indoor adventure. 
Susan is triply confined in her social role, in the home, and even in her own head. In the last three episodes of my podcast, I've asked you to listen to these indoor adventures with an ear to the politics of toxicity, one of the signal characteristics of the Anthropocene Epoch. In the next and final episode of my podcast, we'll listen to one of Escape's apocalyptic adventures, a story of pandemic and collapse that extends the toxic zone to encompass the whole world and that challenges us to imagine a collaborative existence during dangerous times. ESC was written and produced by me, Jake Smith, and published in 2019 by the University of Michigan Press under a Creative Commons NC license. Post-production for the podcast is by Liam Davis. Special thanks to Mary Francis and to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its support of the Fulcrum platform on which this publication is hosted. You can find all 10 episodes of ESC and learn more about the sound artists and environmental issues that I discuss at www.press.umich.edu.esc. Thanks for listening.